If you would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll study verses 24 through 46. Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 46. This is God's word. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of his people tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath, and so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. And put it to his mouth, put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Uh, Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by the night and plunder them until the morning. Let us not leave a man among them alive. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, He shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. 
Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people, Israel, give Tumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray again. Lord, as we read this history of your people, O oh Lord, this testimony of the foolish leadership of Saul, Lord, I pray that you would confront us. O oh Lord, if in any place our hearts are in danger of the same sorts of sin, O oh Lord, of foolishness before you, of a legalism, O oh Lord, you would confront us and correct us. O oh Lord, may it be that our minds are taught and that our hearts are discipled Oh, Lord, that we might not make the mistakes of the fathers that have gone before us. But, Lord, that we would imitate the righteous King, Jesus Christ, who does not put the Lord to the test. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were last together, I think it's been about a month ago, uh, in this passage of Scripture, we studied verses 1 through 24. And you may or may not remember what happened in that passage of Scripture. But verses 1 through 24 come abruptly right after uh, the fall of Saul as he usurped the priesthood by making a sacrifice instead of being patient and waiting on Samuel to come to do the work of the priest and to seek out the will of the Lord. And you may recall uh, Samuel, uh, through the testimony of God, actually rebukes Saul. In fact, he curses Saul, and he proclaims that the kingdom will be removed from him. And another one, another king, a man after the heart of God, will be put in his place. And then in verse 1 through verse 23, we have the account of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and how he was a man of faith, and how he sought out the Lord in prayer, And how he walked in faith and acted in faith against the multitude of the Philistine armies that his father was afraid of and wanted to act rashly against. You may remember how Jonathan and this young man, this unnamed man who's his armor bearer, went up alone against this vast horde of Philistines and how the Lord, because of their faith, 
and by his grace set that whole camp into an uproar. So much so that the Philistines were raising a sword one against the other. And in essence, they collapsed in on themselves by the fear of God that he set upon them. You may also remember that there was an earthquake and that Saul saw what was happening at a distance. That he gathered all the Israelites and that when they had all heard, the army came back together and they had been pursuing the Philistines, driving them out of the promised land. And so we come into verse 24 through verse 46, and it is in that pursuit as Saul has come back onto the battlefield. And what we see, or at least we find, is a disgraced king who's out of control and acting foolishly. And so a few things I want us to see in the passage of Scripture broadly. Uh, In verse 24 through 35, I want us to see an unnecessary vow. An unnecessary vow. Verses 36 through 42, an out-of-control leader. An out-of-control leader. And then in verses 43 through 46, I want us to see a fool stopped in his foolishness. A fool stopped in his foolishness. When we come to verse 24, we read that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, that they'd been pushed into battle uh, by Saul, that they had ran after those who were their enemies, that they had been pursuing them. That's all-consumed in the language of hard-pressed, to the point where we ought to understand just from that one phrase that the people were extremely exhausted. You know this by the direct testimony that follows after it. But this is really from verse 24. This is where we find the armies of the people of Israel. They are already exhausted. And what we do is we come into verse 24 and we find Saul, who had not been a leading part of this great act, this military victory, then, it seems, eager to regain his own glory and authority as he presses the army forward in pursuit of the Philistines. And we read in verse 24 that he laid an oath on the people. Now that language is very important because we need to pay attention to who it is that has the idea of making these people, this whole army, take an oath or a vow to the Lord. It's Saul. This isn't something that derives from God. This isn't something that after a time of prayer... The Lord revealed a need or a use for fasting and being bound by an oath to a fast from food. No, this is Saul. And it is Saul who has already fallen spiritually before the people of Israel. You remember as he took it into his own hands to do the work of a priest. And so here he is trying to lead the people of Israel. And he does so in a way that is not according to what the Lord has directed And frankly, not in the best interest of the people. And this is what he says, and it's a really heavy oath. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Do you get the feel of it? This is about Saul. This isn't about the people of Israel. This is about Saul. This isn't about the God of Israel. This is about Saul. This is not even about Jonathan. It's about his vengeance. 
the offense he feels. It's about his honor, and this is something he wants to do for his rule. And he says to an exhausted army, guess what? Nobody gets dinner until you've pursued them, and they're all conquered. It's really cruel. It's like a parent saying to a child, well, you've done this or you've done that, but until the lawn is mowed, guess what? You're not going to eat. It's cruel, transparently so. And especially to an exhausted people, it's even more cruel. These are men who have really put their life between an enemy and the people of Israel. They have been obedient and they've pursued, they've pursued on foot. Now, I've never been in a physical battle. However, I've been in sports. And if there's even a sense or even a little taste of it, it would be this. It may be exhausting to do the work of physical fighting, but whenever you're doing that and you're pursuing an enemy, it's even more so. To the point where what would, initially, what would eventually happen? Well, your hands would fall by your side, you would lose energy, and only can go so far. That's the reality of things. That if you don't put food in, you don't get energy out, the body will eventually break down and fail. You know, Napoleon Bonaparte, we think, is famous for coining the phrase, an army travels on its stomach. And you see, he has a sense of it. One of the famous tactics of Napoleon was to do what? Well, to pursue an enemy. He had a highly mobile army. And so he understood that if you don't feed them, your men will not be able to go and to overcome their enemy. But here it is. This is Saul. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his vengeance. And he lays it at the foot of these people to not eat. And the whole part of it is to simply, for me to simply say to you, God does not require this sort of thing of people. And he didn't require this sort of thing of Israel in this context. This was Saul in the foolishness of his own mind and heart. We go on to read the close of verse 24. We read about the people's compliance. So none of the people had tasted food. Verse 25 now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now whenever I came to this and I was studying in the commentators, um, I have a little bit of context in my own experience uh, regarding bees and honey. Uh, bees are the only insects, to my awareness and my own research, uh, that produce honey. Uh, other insects produce uh, different byproducts and things and store food in different ways. But bees produce honey, and they do so by the gathering of nectar and then the processes of their own body to make and form honey. I used to have bees uh, whenever I lived in the Mississippi Delta. And I had bees, and they were kept in a specific kind of uh, more natural hive where the combs hung uh, freely from bars. It was called a top bar hive. And uh, it's a little different than what you would see the conventional boxes around here. Uh, that's a more European style of, of hive keeping, whereas what I was doing was an African style of hive keeping, better for hot climates where we were. And so whenever I read this and I started thinking about it, bees in the wild, at least in colder climates, they don't just put honeycombs uh, in the tops of trees out for anybody uh, to take because bees defend this. There are other things, uh, animals that want it. There are uh, also uh, lots and lots of other insects that want to feed upon 
their larvae and even uh, mature bees themselves. But as I read the commentators, they're explaining these are a different sort of bees. These are bees in the Near East, and these are bees that live in a hot climate, an arid climate. And so they would put their hives basically just hanging from branches, not even within a tree, um, but rather just in open places because of the intense heat. And so I've learned a thing, and maybe you all have as well, but the biblical text tells us nonetheless that whenever the army comes, that there is honey dripping from the comb and hitting and covering the ground. Now this is most likely in a season with a great flower bloom, uh, some sort of crop because it would take that sort of thing to have honey doing something like this. We read that whenever these hungry people came and in verse 6 entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. You see, they are, they're terrified. They don't want to be cursed. Uh, they've already heard somebody be cursed, and that was Saul. They took these curses seriously. Uh, they took the authority of Saul quite seriously as well. And so they're good and they're faithful. They keep the vow to the best of their ability. They're weakened already in the body. However, there's somebody who hasn't heard uh, this word, and it's Jonathan, verse 27. He had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and then put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright and uh, you know, I read a number of commentators trying to understand the language of his eyes became bright, but let me just encourage you, read simply here. If you've ever been exhausted, and if you've ever had uh, a, a nice drink, a, a hot or sweet drink, uh, just the refreshment that comes from it, Benjamin, sit down. The refreshment that comes from it and, and the strength that you can regain, I think that's really what it is. He's taken, as it were, a spoonful of sugar to regain his energy, even though he'd been exhausted uh, from the pursuit of the Philistines. He's, well, making perfect sense. Then if you go on, you see in verse 28, one of the people says, Your father strictly charged the people with this oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day, and the people will faint. And so you can see the, the exchange. You've got people whose arms are falling by their side. They're starving. They're hungry. They're overwhelmed. Uh, with the physical exertion that they've had. They do need food. And here Jonathan has received this sweet treat of honey and has gained this energy. But it's what Jonathan says. He gives a speech uh, that begins in verse 27. And I want you to hear what he says uh, because, I'm sorry, excuse me, verse 29, not 27. Uh, what he says because it's really telling. Because in Jonathan you've got a righteous man that loves the Lord, who's faithful, and he's speaking about his father uh, who has shown himself to act unrighteously. He says, verse 29, My father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. That's his opening statement. And this should ring some bells for us as we've read the Bible and we're readers of the Bible. It's the same language that is said of Achan, right? Whenever the people of Israel were cursed by his foolish action. My father has cursed or troubled the land. 
And he says to them, see how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? See, I've been made strong. I've gained my strength again for this pursuit of the enemy. Verse 30. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. You see, he's looking on to what his father said, and he's looking on the, the state of the people of Israel, this army, and he is saying, my father has acted foolishly. We would have been much more successful if only we'd just eaten. If only we'd had even a little bit of honey. Just the touching of the end of the staff and bringing it to the mouth. It doesn't even say he, he gorged himself or feasted on the honey. No, it's just a taste. If only, if only my father hadn't acted in this way. Because look, even now, the defeat of the Philistines has not been great. That really shines a light on it. That Saul has made it a thing about himself. He's made it all about what he thinks needs to be done rather than what is best for the people. And he's levied this unnecessary vow. He's given them over, really, to a legalism. That's really a sad thing. Uh, this, this vow that he's given, it's not by the word of God. It doesn't uh, give any picture for holiness. In fact, it uses fasting in a way that the Bible doesn't use fasting. Right? It, it establishes fasting uh, here in this, uh, as a way to sort of force the hand of God, to make God do what he wants, to make God give them victory. But what is fasting normally for? Well, it's usually for seeking the will of God. It's usually to deepen prayer or to focus the heart on God. It's not just a voluntary weakness and a punishment of the body and some hope of making the Lord do this, that, or another thing. No, indeed, it's none of those things. It's spiritual. Yet Saul has made the people do it out of a legalism, out of a sense of, well, we'll do this because it's something to do. It's something to do that might have a spiritual benefit. And really, it's a formalism that doesn't have the heart in it. You see, what he's done is he's pressed the heart of the people and he's bound their conscience, not by the word of God, but by the desire of his own heart to make the people afraid of what might happen to them if they don't do what he says. It's an unnecessary vow. It's not the sort of vow that the Lord requires of his people. And it even ends up hurting the people of Israel and leading them into a greater measure of unholiness. We go on and we read in verse 31 that they struck down the Philistines that day and continue to pursue them from Michmash to Aijalon and that the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and ate them with the blood. They turned ravenous. They were so tired the first time they see something that they can eat. They've already passed up the honey But now oxen and calves and sheep, they've got one thing on their mind with a growling belly. They want and need food. And so now we have them being uh, a people accused of engaging in what the word of God actually forbids. Leviticus chapter 17 forbids the people of Israel from eating meat with the life or with the blood still in it. And this is something that's then also repeated uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, This is one of the few things that the uh, Council of Jerusalem uh, then does encourage and 
um, sanction for Gentile believers uh, to then keep. But what's the point? Meaningless and foolish vows made in legalism with the intention to change God's will or to force God to do a thing end up inevitably leading to actual acts of sin, actual transgressions of the word of God. So let me say it again in just a simple sentence. Legalism and foolish vows tend to lead people into actual sins. Okay? A misuse of God's word, a misuse of God's means tend to bring people away from God and into desperate situations. An unnecessary vow. As we go on in verses 36 through 42, we read about an out-of-control leader. Verses 36 through 42. Here we have uh, another... um, Excuse me, I need to back up just a little bit. So I would uh, read from verse... Yeah, 34. Uh, We read that Saul said, Disperse among yourselves... And among the people, and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep, and slaughter them here, and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And so faced with what the people are doing, and the effect that his foolish vow has had on them, he turns and does the very opposite of what he's already said, doesn't he? Well, it seems like this is out of control. It seems like this is not a thing helpful. It seems like this is actually a sin, and these people are actually uh, doing far more than he'd ever imagined. And so he turns and tries to right the situation and calls the people uh, to then um, make sacrifices and to eat sacrifices, even though he's forbidden them uh, from it. In verse 36, we take up and we read, uh, that Saul says, go down to after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them alive. And so here in verse 36, there's Saul at it again. It's not been enough that they've pursued their enemies. It's not been enough that they have had victories, even uh, if, as Jonathan says, uh, they've been victories in the margin. Um, he wants more. Uh, He wants uh, a total and complete victory. Uh, He wants to slaughter them all. And he wants it to happen by night. It's like the next idea. Uh, And it's the next thing that just comes right to his mind. And do you see how the people respond to this foolish leadership, this sort of reckless leadership that comes out of nowhere? They say, do whatever seems good to you. And I think that's often where people find themselves whenever they're following foolish leaders. Well, uh, he knows best of what's for us. Uh, Who could really go against him without suffering harm? And so they just follow along. And at times whenever you think about the history of the world and you think about leaders, despotic leaders, bad leaders, uh, you might ask the question, you know, how is it possible that all the people actually went along with this crazy idea? Well, they're afraid of the man. I mean, that's why they've starved themselves in the course of battle anyway. They're afraid of what might happen to them if they don't. Afraid either from the Lord or afraid uh, from the hand uh, of Saul. And you go on and there's one man that actually speaks up. And I think it's one that's quite close to Saul. Uh, It's uh, the priest. 
Um, he leans over and he says to Saul uh, in uh, verse 36, let us draw near to God here. Hang on a second, Saul. Um, I hear the idea that you have, but, but Saul, it seems like this has just come out of nowhere. Uh, the people uh, have been starving and now they've eaten. They're filled with, with meat and uh, they've already been exhausted past the point of, of their ability to easily recover. Hang on a second, Saul. Don't you think we ought to think about this? Don't you think we ought to pray and draw near to the Lord, the God of heaven here? Let's not just run into the camp. You know, Saul, hasn't that already been bad for you? Saul, hasn't that already been bad for the people of Israel running in and just doing whatever you want us to do? He asked for prayer. Verse 37, we're told that Saul inquired of God. And this is what his prayer sounds like. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And then Saul's interpretation of a prayer that didn't get answered, of a voice that doesn't come from God. Well, it's simple. In verse 38, we see he sort of begins to spiral out of control. Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. He looks around and he says, well, there's obviously something that one of you did. If God won't speak to me, if he won't answer me, there's obviously something that one of you did, either among the people or, among my, or in the heart of my son, or maybe even in me. And so this great assembly is called. Verse 39, For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. You see what he's saying? He's saying, did Jonathan do this? Because if he did, I'll kill him. If Jonathan is the reason why God won't answer, I'll kill him. And you see all the people, they just stand, just stand in utter silence. You're going to kill your son? You know, the one that went against the Philistines with success from the Lord, you're going to kill him? They're beyond words and they're frightened at him. And they don't say a word. It's almost as if he's beginning to swing the hand with the finger outstretched of accusation. Verse 40, then he said to Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on another. Uh, if, if you won't answer me, then I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to force the Lord to answer us. And so he sets up this test and you've got the people of Israel on one side and then there's Jonathan and him on the other. And there's this thing, Urim and Tumim. This is an ancient way that the people of Israel and the people of God discerned the will of God. But you should think of it like the flipping of a coin. It's a 50-50 chance. If it's Urim, it's one answer. If it's Tumim, it's another. As if it's heads or tails. He's like, if you won't say anything, I'll get to the bottom of it. I'll force God to say something. I'll force him. I'll take it into my own hands. I'll make God do what I want. He'll tell me what I need to know. Because he's looking for the mole. He's looking for the one who has caused the problem. It goes on and as he begins to flip the coin of the Urim and the Tumim, uh, well, the people of Israel are, uh, well, they're excused, rescued from the angry and out of control king. 
Then it's just him and his son Jonathan, and he turns the coin as it were, and it lands to Jonathan, and it's obvious, and it's there clear that the testimony that he had heard whispered among the people that Jonathan did something, that it must actually be Jonathan. Uh, You know one thing that at least I want to say as you come this far into the passage is that, you know, maybe the silence of the Lord was an answer. You know, he prayed and he asked the Lord, Lord, should I go against the Philistines? Should I go against them this evening? Will you give them into our hand? And the Lord said nothing. A foolish question doesn't deserve an answer in that fashion. See, my boys know that in my house, sometimes they'll ask questions and Daddy just keeps on writing. They'll say it a little bit louder and Daddy obviously heard and he doesn't give an answer because it's not a good question. And the answer is actually the silence and it's a resounding and silent no Saul should have just simply accepted it. But now he's at odds with his son, out of control, threatening death against his son, whom he's held against an oath that he didn't even hear. And he's threatening to kill the captain of his army, the one man that they're actually willing uh, to follow. And as you go on, it just gets worse. (laughs) It gets worse between the two of them. To the point where Jonathan says, quite simply, in verse 43, Yeah, I've done it. As he asked, tell me what you have done. Yes, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff. Here I am. I will die. Do what you want, king. This is a man out of control. A man who, in essence, has put his own heart against God and is willing to take out anybody that gets in the way. And you go on, and in verses 43 through 46, you see a fool stopped in his foolishness. A fool stopped in his foolishness. Verse 43, there's the confession of Jonathan. Yes, I've done it. Yes, I've taken it. Here I am. Do what you will. I will die. And then Saul responds in in the psychosis of his mind. God do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And then what do you have in verse 45? You have the intervention of the people that up until this point have simply been able to say, do what seems good to you, king. You're the only one that it seems good to, but if it seems good to you, just do whatever you want. And now they're hearing him looking at his son, foaming at the mouth, raving and angry at him because of the taking of a drop of honey, something that should have never been required. And they say to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. So you're not going to touch him. You may be one man and a king, but we're an army. You're going to do this to our, our captain, our friend, our leader? Far from it. As the Lord lives... Now, there is a holy vow. That's what they're saying. As the Lord lives, they're swearing by the name and, in fact, the person of God. There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God to this day. Saul, you won't touch him. We're accountable to God. We're here for his life. We'll defend him unto death. You shall not touch him. We'll stand between you and between him. And we'll make sure that he's safe. 
when you go on and read, not that Saul just relents, not even that they just are able to take Jonathan, but rather the language is very specific. It says that the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. What does that look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know what the ransom exactly is. We know that Saul's got an altar. We know that he's uh, bloodthirsty. Uh, He's out of his mind, raving, planning to kill his son. We know that he thinks uh, that uh, the Lord silenced to him the deposed king who sinned against the Lord. Uh, We know that he thinks that the Lord's silence against him is because of somebody else. So what does it make sense that the ransom might be? Well, possibly an animal, possibly some kind of sacrifice, some kind of offering. They purchased Jonathan from the hands of his father. You know, it doesn't tell us the great detail, but it does seem as if they've simply said, all right, Saul, uh, why don't you take this and give us him? Why, 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 don't, you, why don't you take your anger out on on this animal rather than in the body of your son who has honored you and who has led us. And then we read in verse 46 that Saul in his shame, even though the text doesn't say it, there's that weight there, that Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went there to their own place. The Philistines weren't conquered, even though they could have been. Saul went away alone away from the Philistines, and the people were left with Jonathan, uh, their champion, their captain, in their own hands. And so you see this, this great depiction, historical depiction, of sometimes what it takes whenever you've got a foolish leader completely out of control, not only calling people to do things that are foolish, trying to treat God as if God is, well, his own puppet to be done with whatever he wills, Sometimes it just takes a brave voice from godly people to stand and to simply say, no, you'll not do that. And to do that with the fear of God and faith that the Lord loves the righteous. And that when the people of God act righteously, the Lord will bless it. An interesting part of the history of the people of God. May the Lord teach us and give us instruction. May we never see a day... Uh, where principles from this passage actually have to come into play in our own lives. But if we do see a day, may the Lord give us grace and courage uh, to meet that day and to meet that challenge uh, with faith and with an assurance that God reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love your word. Lord, we love the telling of the way your hand moves in the midst of your people. Lord, how you sustain and how you keep. Father, and how you are even pleased uh, to put down the hands of wicked men, O Lord, and even foolish leaders. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that you would bless the leaders of our own country, Lord, that they would act rightly and righteously, O Father, that we may be able to submit uh, with as good a conscience as could be had, Lord. We pray that uh, that you would bind uh, these men and women who lead, O Lord, bind them by the teaching of your word. Cause them to fear you, O Father in heaven, and cause us to fear you rather than men. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.